You are listening to a podcast from The National. The world is running out of time to avoid the devastating impact of climate change. This week's COP24 was an important step in the implementation of the Paris Agreement. At the UN Climate Change Summit, 196 countries drafted and signed a rulebook to reduce global warming to less than 2 degrees. Of course, it's no simple task. Those involved in the meetings in Poland were locked in marathon negotiations, arguing over the details. Some governments, mostly those from small island nations especially at risk from rising sea levels, pushed other countries to commit to a 1.5 degree Celsius change by 2050. This was based off a recent UN report that says anything short of that could spell catastrophic global warming-related events. We're talking entire cities submerged in water and an intensification of natural disasters to unprecedented levels. For the Arabian Peninsula, the outlook means hotter and more humid summers with violent desert storms. To help avoid that, countries are expected to reduce their reliance on non-renewable energy sources. This would mean cutting oil production for a region where more than 90% of its income depends on fossil fuels. On paper, at least, concessions have been made toward the two-degree target. But in practice, signatories have a lot of work to do. As it stands today, the world is headed to a three-degree temperature increase in the next 30 years. In that scenario, scientists say that large parts of the GCC would become uninhabitable. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr Wesmi, and this week following COP24, we ask again, are we doing enough to curb global warming? We'll hear from two experts on the matter. Dr. Deepti Mittal is the program leader of the World Wildlife Fund in the UAE. She agrees with scientists who say that although governments are moving in the right direction, it's not fast enough. If you look at climate science and you know the reports that have been coming from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the United Nations, climate science makes it amply clear that we are taking steps in the right direction by limiting greenhouse gas emissions. But we as the international community are clearly not doing enough. Uh, If we want to keep to the Paris Agreement goal of uh, keeping global average temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, our greenhouse gas emissions need to actually peak as soon as possible. So they need to, you know, reach their uh, peak ideally by 2020. And they need to start declining steeply thereafter. And then we need to reach net zero emissions by 2050. But if we look at what is happening today, our emissions may not peak until 2030 even. And if we look at our past record in 2017, global carbon dioxide emissions increased after stagnating for three years. Um, In terms of temperature rise, we are looking at a scenario where uh, if countries were to meet the commitments that they have made to the Paris Agreement till now, we would still see global warming of about three degrees Celsius by 2100. Uh, so, and all of these, uh, you know, uh, statistics are not just numbers. They are, they really mean impacts on human life and livelihoods and our ecosystems. Uh, so there's not just potential, but there's an urgent need to do much more. We have the right technology. We know what kind of policy instruments are needed. We know the lifestyle changes that need to be made. What we really need now is strong political will globally and implementation of cross-stakeholder action that encompasses private sector as well as communities. 
Where is the GCC lacking in terms of climate change policy? The GCC countries have been investing in uh, renewable energy, in sustainable transport options, and they've been working towards better demand-side management as well, demand-side management of energy. If you look at the case of the UAE, the National Energy Plan has set a 44% renewable energy capacity target by 2050. Uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, all have initiated renewable energy programs. But we do need to bear in mind that the kind of transformational change that we need requires a shift in the way we plan our entire energy system and services. Uh, it also calls for change in lifestyles. A very good overarching kind of step that GCC countries can take is to set economy-wide emission reduction targets. And these need to be accompanied by sectoral contributions and sectoral responsibilities so that the entire energy, transport, industry, and residential ecosystem is pulling in the same direction. Do some Gulf countries view the Paris Agreement as a threat to their oil-based economies, considering that the majority of how they make their money is from fossil fuels? Uh, rather than a threat, climate action is actually an opportunity for oil-based economies. Uh, GCC countries have for many years now uh, followed the principle of uh, economic diversification to build robust economies that are driven by innovation and knowledge and uh, you know education services. So climate change action with investments in alternative energy technology, with new areas of work emerging in carbon abatement and energy service companies are really helping develop new streams of revenue and employment. So it is definitely not right to frame climate mitigation as a threat to GCC economies in any way. The problem is we know that most countries, with the exception of one or two, are not doing enough to meet the Paris Agreement to reduce global warming to less than two degrees. And I'm just wondering if the GCC economies, uh, maybe even the Arab world as a whole, understands what is at stake here. And I wanted to know if there are any reports that indicate that the Arabian Peninsula is at risk of extreme weather events as a result of global warming? And if so, what might those events be? There have been a number of studies conducted globally on climate change impacts and risks that, uh, you know, uh, our life and our livelihoods and our ecosystems face because of climate change. Uh, there have been regional work as well. Uh, in fact, uh, the Abu Dhabi Global Environmental Data Initiative uh, did a lot of uh, modeling and research to understand what kind of climate impacts we will see in the region. Uh, and if we look at uh, the impacts that sort of emerge from that research, we know that there is expectation of uh, significant temperature, average temperature increase in, in the Gulf uh, to the extent of about two to three degrees Celsius. And of course, we already live in a hot climate, so that could have adverse impacts. Uh, sea level rise uh, is is a major uh, climate change impact as well, and that is going to have implications for uh, Gulf countries. Again, the Arabian Gulf would also become more saline, so because of the changes that would take place in temperature and uh, you know sea sea level, that kind of like works together to make sure that salinity uh, changes as well. Uh, humidity is expected to rise by about ten percent. And all of these changes will have attendant impacts on our sectors, on our economic sectors as well. So energy consumption would go up because if we have higher temperatures and higher humidity, we will obviously have a higher cooling demand. Uh, coastal infrastructure could be at risk from sea level rise. So we need to look at managing that uh, impact as well. Uh, marine and terrestrial species and their habitats would be threatened. 
Um, and because we are already seeing some of these impacts globally, the countries in the Gulf also need to start looking at risk and resilience and need to start looking at adaptation, even while they are working towards climate mitigation. Uh, and, uh, you know, notably, the UAE Ministry of Climate Change and Environment is already undertaking a comprehensive assessment of risk and solutions as part of its adaptation program. So so there is a recognition, uh, you know, of uh, what is really at stake and the kind of impacts that we are going to see. It's just that we need to bring all of this knowledge together and really start implementing some of the solutions that are required to deal with some of these risks. Last year at COP23 in Bonn, we heard a lot of talk about technology being the solution to climate change. That struck me a bit as if governments were trying to dodge accountability and putting off policies that we know actually work, which is things that you mentioned, uh, mitigation, reducing uh, waste, emissions, changing habits. Mm -hmm. How important is technological advancement in climate change? And is it the key to actually solving the problem? I mean, definitely technology is critical to uh, both climate change mitigation and adaptation. Uh, If we look at the two biggest components of uh, climate mitigation, renewable energy and energy efficiency, it is all about alternative and better, more efficient technologies. Uh, But technology R&D, technology deployment and technology diffusion is all determined by policy decisions. They are determined by where governments and private sector decide to invest capital. They are determined by what decisions consumers like you and I are making in our daily lives. So it is wrong to assume that technology alone will solve the problem. It is the means to an end. The end is the impact that we want these technologies to have. What is the single most important change Arabian Gulf governments can make today that would help push them toward meeting their Paris Agreement objectives? I would say two things here, Nasser. One is that as solar-rich countries, uh, the GCC economies would gain immensely from expanding the share of renewables in their energy mix. Actually, if we don't utilize the solar radiation resource that we have uh, available in ample here in in the desert environment, it is a lost opportunity for us. So this is a great time for countries to review their ambition on renewables. Uh, As the Paris Agreement timelines for revision of the nationally determined contributions, which is the term that is used for the commitments that countries are making to the Paris Agreement, the the timelines for revision of these commitments is upon us. And uh, this is the time for GCC countries to really show leadership globally on, on the topic of climate change. And the second thing that I would say is that the energy intensity of our lifestyles here in the GCC is fairly high. It is partly driven by the hot climate that we live in because of which the cooling needs are very high. But we all can take small steps to save electricity and portable water, uh, which is also a scarce and highly energy intensive resource here in the region. So we need to be prudent in our use of electricity, uh, you know, set air conditioners to a reasonable 23 or 24 degrees, switch off lights when not in use, buy efficient appliances, buy efficient cars, uh, you know, use efficient water faucets in our offices and in our homes. Uh, we can also make uh, dietary changes in our lifestyle to reduce our impact on the environment since, you know, the meat processing industry is a huge consumer of energy. So, uh, so there are lots of different things that we as individuals can do as well. And we will only be able to deal with the climate challenge if all of us as individuals, as private companies, as governments, as, you know, local municipalities, we all understand that we all have a role to play here. As Dr. Deepti says, the GCC countries can lead by example. 
Gulf countries with dry, arid climates can take the necessary measures and send a strong signal to the rest of the world. But there are challenges ahead, as we hear from Tanzid Alam, Managing Director of Earth Matters Consultancy. Well, it's setting up uh, yeah, at COP25 to actually get ready for the implementation of the Paris Agreement, which will start in 2020. Now, the the issue is more that, um, you know, as you're aware, probably in earlier on this year in October, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a special report uh, looking at how much how far away we are from actually limiting warming to one and a half degrees, which was the overall goal set at COP, um, COP21 in Paris in 2015. So, um, yes, emissions reduction pledges to go beyond what's already been committed is absolutely crucial. Otherwise, this report points out we really have a very limited window in which to even meet the overall objective of the Paris Agreement to limit warming to two degrees, ideally one and a half degrees. The talks didn't seem like they were going in the right direction last week. There was disagreements between the signatories. Uh, namely, it was reported that uh, the U.S., Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait uh, contributed to producing a watered-down version of the report. Is there any reason why? And what was the point uh, of this agreement exactly? So, well, those countries that you just mentioned, in particular, they didn't. They wanted... Um, text in the draft agreement to not include um, a welcome of the IPCC report, which was looking at the trajectory of emissions reductions needed to limit warming to one and a half degrees. Now, the surprising thing about that was that the UN actually requested this special report to be um, to be commissioned by the IPCC, which is the UN's um, own climate change advisory body. So the fact that they didn't um, want to include wording to welcome the findings of that report was surprising, but also in a way um, not surprising as well because of the, the stakes that those countries have in in terms of um, uh, moving away from fossil fuels. So those countries are pretty dependent on fossil fuels as a source of income. And um, so they would be naturally more entrenched in not accepting the, that wording of that. So, but but nevertheless, the, the science has been pretty clear in that report that um, all the pledges made to the Paris Agreement mean that if they were implemented, we'd still be on course for warming of between three to four degrees. So globally, all countries, you know, um, do need to step up and make further emissions reductions pledges to improve the, the level of ambition. Their unwillingness to accept the IPCC report, could that be taken as a sign of uh, their reluctancy to actually reduce global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is what the report is calling countries uh, to commit to? It, it could be a variety of variety of reasons, I guess. it's One thing is that the one and a half degree world means that it's in everyone's interest to actually limit it to that because it means that the co- the impact that countries like the US and Russia and, and others would face um, would be limited, or more limited than a two-degree world or a three-degree world. So the cost to their economies would be lower in that kind of world. But also at the same time, there are some important political considerations that these countries have you know, in terms of the accept. You know, the, um, the US has signaled its intention to pull out of the Paris Agreement, which if it follows through with it would happen in 2020. Um, now that might change if, if administration changes policy or if others come in. Um, uh, and so on. 
so that these things can always change. Um, I'd say that the poorest, the most vulnerable states, whether it's the small island states who are already on the front line of climate change or countries like Bangladesh and, and, and so on who, who face the, the most severe impacts, it's really in their biggest interest for warming to be limited to one and a half degrees, but also they're the least responsible for the warming um, that we've already experienced and bear the least historical responsibility. So the dynamic in these negotiations, which is enshrined in the UNFCCC principles, has always been one of the, the developed, the richer countries are the ones who should really take the lead in, in making the biggest emissions cuts and also the ones who should really provide the financing uh, as a means of facilitating further action amongst uh, developing countries to reduce their emissions as well as helping them to adapt to the impacts of climate change. So um, it's probably, it was a bit of a, I'm sure it was a bit of a positioning exercise, which probably didn't help build trust in the process. But from what I understand um, is, is that um, the, the this agreement re reached in COP24 has managed to agree the rule book of implementation of the Paris Agreement, which is a positive success, which is something that um, countries were hoping for um, uh, to, to be achieved from the talks this in the last few weeks. Are there any systems in place, mechanisms, whereby the actual uh, governing body can place pressure on countries to commit to their targets or even to uh, increase those ambitions? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. That's a tricky one in the sense that it's more how those ambitions happen at the global level. Um, so you could say in, in some cases, action is bottom up, where um, if you look at countries like the US, you have um, a, a coalition there called the We Are Still In Coalition, where businesses, mayors, different states are saying that even though the federal government has signaled that they're leaving the Paris Agreement, they're still in. And that's exactly the purpose of the campaign. And that's getting a lot of um, groundswell support to show that they, you know, there's a good economic case for states to, to, to take action and they're, they're moving ahead regardless of what their government is saying. In other countries, I'd say it's also about um, building that awareness amongst the population about what they could do. So, um, you know, it can be seen, climate change can be seen as quite a disempowering issue as well, because you could read the headlines and just think it's bad news. What can, what difference can, can people make and businesses make? So I think just raising awareness about positive lifestyle changes that people can make are really important. So people feel empowered that they can do something about it. And, um, and, and to, to see that it's not all doom and gloom. You know, there's a lot of positive action out there. There's record levels of investment in renewable energy. There's um, it's becoming more and more cost effective to 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 install solar panels in people's houses. Um, you know, look at options like um, LEDs, which are way cheaper now than they used to be five years ago. Um, there's now grants in place in the UAE to, um, and, and you know, reduced registration fees for electric cars. So there's better options that people have to change their lifestyles. So I think all of this could be woven as part of a more positive narrative. And I think um, organisations, it could be non-governmental organisations or non-profit charities and more community-level groups could could um could work in that space to generate a more groundswell of positive momentum and support for the cause, which is really important. And finally, uh, well, ultimately, 
Tanzid, are countries doing enough? Are they being asked to do more? And I mean, where are we headed if the commitments stay as they are today? Well, the simple answer is no, they're not. And um, in line with the one and a half degree trajectory, pretty much every single country that put forward its pledges, bar one or two examples, um, uh, all need to increase the level of ambition to to reduce their emissions. You know, the UN was, uh, the IPCC was pretty clear by the middle of this century, we need to have net zero emissions in the economy. So that implies a significant deviation and it requires pretty big transformational changes across all levels of society um, to ensure that the solutions come in place. Now, the positive thing is the solutions are out there already and a lot of them are getting more and more economically efficient um, and uh, cost effective. So, um, you know, solar power is one of them and so is wind. And it's more a case of making sure that the money flows in these directions. Now, at the same time, it's also in a good from a good um, strategic perspective to prepare ourselves for the, the worst impacts that climate change could throw our way. So it's also important that countries start developing adaptation plans so they can actually prepare their population for the impacts of climate change. Thanks to Dr. Deepti Mittal and Tanzid Alam for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing You can find this and all the other national podcasts on our website. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free to receive new episodes every week. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audioboom, or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.